0: Welcome, everyone, to The Jake Dunlap Show. This is your weekly dose of real success stories from entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, CEOs, and the people that you love. If you've ever wondered what makes people tick, what are the weird things that happened to them in their past that helped to shape the people that they've became? Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern, you can tune in and get exactly that. The behind behind the scenes, not the typical behind the scenes, but the real stories that shaped some of the people that you know, love and follow. All right, what is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Jake Dunlap show. Today's conversation is going to be a fun one because not only we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about growing and scaling We're going to talk about growing up internationally and making the move to the U.S. We're going to talk about health, wellness, and really what it takes to be successful today when you're running a company. Today's guest is a man whose drive comes from the idea that everyone has to create something in their life. According to him, 90% of your success is guaranteed if you create out of passion and don't use money or recognition as the incentive for the journey you embark on, which I agree 1000% with. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. PhD as well, too. I forgot that part. Mr. Asaf Darash. Asaf, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a good one, man. And so again, you've got the technical side. You've done a lot of different things in your life. And so I think it's going to be fun to kind of talk a little bit about your journey and your path. So let's talk a little bit about you know, some of the early memories you have around you know entrepreneurship, business. I know born in Jerusalem, spent a lot of your time in Australia, which I'm sure is a lot of a lot of different things that were happening. So talk a little bit about the early days of your upbringing. And what are some of the big memories that that stand out during those times?
1: Yeah, like I was born in Israel, but I grew up in Australia. And basically from a very early age, when I was little, like computers were not everywhere. But I was really interested in computers. Like it was like it seemed like magic to me. And we'll talk about in a second about why, why it's magic. I still think today that it's magic, right? Like it's, it's, it's amazing. You know what? Let's start with that. Think of it like this. An architect wants to design a building, okay? He designs the building, but now someone needs to go out and build the building. A programmer thinks of a program, designs it, writes it down, and it exists. It's an actually working machine. It's like magic. It really is. So that really fascinated me from the age of like seven, right? And I was always drawn to computers, always drawn to programming.
0: What was the first language you learned? The first... Basic. It was called Basic. Basic. Oh, that's how you know you're an OG. Just, just so you guys know, if you want to check someone's street cred who claims to be a good developer, ask them if they know how to write in Basic. Because that means, man... For those of you who don't know, we'll la- we'll do a link to the show notes so you guys could actually understand what we're talking about. But all right, so that that's respect there. You got that, that's mad respect there.
1: And and I think the funniest story was that when I was about ten, I got my first computer, and it was like a big deal, right? Like, like this huge box with the screens that are only green, right? And after about a month that I was programming with the computer, I come, my father comes back home. And I, I tell him, Dad, uh, we have a problem. And he's like, what's the problem? Uh, the computer's not working anymore. He's like, why is it not working anymore? And he comes into my room and I totally disassembled the computer because I want to understand how it works. I'm a 10-year-old boy, right? So that's the type of things that I would I, I was doing as, as a child. Like I was I was playing with computers all the time. I was really fascinated about it. And then I actually started off not learning computer science. I started off with economics and political science.
0: What drew you to that? Yeah, what was it about that, like those arenas?
1: I was always interested in economics. I was always interested in, in the dynamics of microeconomics and how basically you're creating a functional system. When you think of it, like nobody's actually monitoring it. Everybody's doing their thing and it's just happening, right? So that really, really interests me. So I decided to go learn economics. Now, when I was learning economics, it was the beginning of the first tech bubble, right? And that's when I said, wait a second, these two things that I love connect, economics and
0: and computers. Right. And were you at Berkeley at the time too? Is this when you're at Berkeley?
1: No, no. That's when I was, uh, I was actually, my bachelor's degree is from the Hebrew University and then I moved to Berkeley. uh, When I did my PhD, and then I started actually learning linguistics. And then in my PhD, everything connected. Because my PhD, I, I researched how computer languages and computer networks actually create human action how they control human action or how basically like one of the basic ideas in linguistics is the words that you have are control what you can think okay there, there, for example if there, there's certain there's like a very famous thing that there's a certain tribe that does not have the word I in, in the language okay a word the I they don't have that in the language So all their their functions everything that they do is very community based. Okay, So in the same way, when you have specific computer languages, they create a certain type of action that the programmers will create by the very definition that that's how the language is structured. So then when I did my PhD, I wanted to connect linguistics, computer languages, and economics all together. I started working on my PhD. I got a Fulbright scholarship. Uh, We moved to the US, to Berkeley. There I met people that I have no other way of saying it blew my mind. There I also changed my mentor to a mentor from um, artificial intelligence from MIT. So I was like going to Boston here and there to meet him and coming back to Berkeley, made sure not to go to Boston in the winter because that's really bad. There basically I came up with the idea of RegPack, which is my company today. What happened is we started working and I won't go into it because it's very technical, right? But, but basically one of the biggest problems of computers is what's called the private language problem. Okay. Okay. The private language problem is that in order to create a computer or to create a software, you have to use a lot of other softwares or a lot of other hardware, okay? Right? Like I can't create it in a void. But the problem with computers is because like we said, it's a bit like magic. I can create something that has its own private language that works independently of everything else. And now in order to, let's say I have an application that tells you the, the stock prices. Now in order to use it, you need to speak my language, right? Now we've created the whole idea of APIs and all that, which is basically try to mitigate the problem with the private language. Yeah. It's like translated. All the APIs are like little translators, right? So when we were working on that, we said, okay, can you actually create a software that doesn't have any constants in it? Nothing is constant. Like everything is a variable. Everything can be changed. And when we started working on it, we thought that technically it wasn't possible. And actually, technically, it is possible because that's exactly what richback is. It's, it's an application that has no constants in it. And then we already had our second child and all that. And I was like, okay, okay, this is like really fun playing with computers and all that. But now, you, like, let's see if we can actually do something with this, right? Like make money. And
0: that was right out of school. So right out of school, you went straight into kind of your own world your own company and starting i think it was x tag right was x tag like v1 i mean look you obviously had this massive experience with your skill set i mean you could have went out to school and worked for any large or medium-sized you know tech firm like what was it that made you want to do your own thing like was there something that you remember that you know you're like oh man i'm not gonna work for the like the other big guys you know what I'll, i'll just
1: quote my chief operation officer he always tells me working with you is trying to hold a bull in in its place it's like you're running so fast that you want to do so many things at the same time that it's, it's really like riding a bull. And I don't think that that can work in, in like corporate America. It's just won't work, right?
0: <laughs> How did you figure that out, though? I mean, was it was it something like in your mind? Were you always going to go into like business for yourself, like, or was it just like an inevitable conclusion? Did you ever try to go work at a company or internship or anything?
1: First of all, during my my PhD, I worked for a lot of like different organizations and so forth, because you need to fund yourself, right? That's one. But I think it's also a, something that came from my family, because my father uh, has multiple hotels and, and, and real estate, and he's, he's like a businessman, right? And, and it's something you grow up with where, where it's very obvious that you're supposed to have your own business. It's like a given. You can't not be at the top of the chain. That's just how it is. That's one. The second thing I think is also the passion to create something. I came out, uh, finishing my, my postdoc, actually not my only my PhD. I finished a postdoc and then I was like, okay, I want to create something in the world. I want to do something. I really want people to use something that I create on a daily basis. I think that like if, if I wouldn't be a developer, I would be an architect because it's like, it's, it's usable art. There's something about the fact that you create something and people use it every single day. I sometimes go into the statistics of our application and I see like, you know, 100 people, 100,000 people registered today in RegPack or there are there currently there are 10,500 administrators in the application right now and I personally feel it's amazing. I created something in the world that thousands and thousands of people interact with and it's part of their life. It's amazing
0: bold you know it's it's really bold to think early on of you know wanting to do that and and then actually going and doing it you know i think a lot of people probably are listening and they want to do that yeah i want to have something what do you feel like you know, when you think about your kind of through line here, your different experiences, your dad's experience, you know, what do you feel like gives you that level of like vision or even maybe the feeling like I can do this, right? Because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I wish I could do that. I wish I could like, you know, where does that come from? That, 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 that belief, like I said in the very opening too, of like, I'm going to create something like, you know, do, do you like, have any idea where like that comes from for you?
1: That's a good question. I'm going I'm to give you an answer that's a bit strange.
0: All right, I like it.
1: I think it's a vanity. Okay. You need to be a little a little vain to to say, I can do this and go out and jump into the freezing water. And only only when you're in the freezing water you're like, Oh my god, what am I doing here? But I'm in here already, so I can't get out. So I need to, to swim. So I, I think a lot of times when you when you see people that do something that you're like, wow, that's amazing. And I see a lot of people where I, I look at them and I'm like, wow, that's amazing that he did that. Yeah, of course. Probably when they jumped in, they weren't aware that that's what they're getting into, right? Like today, I know what I what I got myself into.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you can look back.
1: I don't know if I knew. <laughs> you can you're like <laughs> if I knew that. I would actually jump into the water, but but that's that's part of what makes us human, I guess, right? That we don't have all the information. Because if we did have all the information, it, we wouldn't do it.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think too, just like the idea that you just said, which is, you know, you knew directionally what, what you wanted to jump into. And then, you know, you kind of have to, there is a little bit of that, whether it's ego or naivete or whatever, that you're like, I'll figure it out. Like, it'll, it'll work out somehow. And yeah, the funny part is too, it's It always does. Like maybe not when you want it to work out, maybe not as fast, but life is long. It's a lot longer than we think. And that, you know, over time, if you're, you know, continuing to put yourself in in different situations, wherever that journey is supposed to lead or where it's supposed to lead is is where you will, you know, you'll end up there, you know, regardless of if you plan perfectly and then never jumped.
1: I don't believe in fate, but I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And there's a really nice story about that. After I got my Fulbright scholarship, I needed to decide, am I going, like, where am I going? And and I applied to Harvard. I actually wanted to go to Harvard. And that's when I found, like, later, like, at the same time, I found my mentor from MIT. And I didn't get into Harvard. Like, they, they told me, no, like, we don't have space in, in this specific program and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I got an email from, from my mentor in, 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 to be my mentor at Berkeley. And and I remember the conversation with with Roger. I was like, Roger, I can't believe it. Like I wanted to go to to Harvard and be close to you because you're on MIT, and blah, blah blah. And and he was like, This is a blessing in disguise, and you have no idea how much this is going to change your life. And he was so right. If I would have gone to Harvard, I would have been a totally different person than what I, than who I am today. I would have met. Completely different people. I wouldn't have started my my company in San Francisco. Like my whole life would have been different. And something that at the time seemed like a disaster to me, today is one of the most important things that happened to me. The fact that I failed there.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and again, it's just the score will be totaled up over time. And I think sometimes we, we can only see the next week or month or year. And I think, you know, especially some of the things that we're going through right now, right, with the economy, etc. I think if you haven't been through it, or you're nervous, you know, time, it, it will all wash out, you know, there when there's really, really good times, there's going to be, you know, times that aren't as good always. And I think for a lot of people right now, I think this is a really important mindset for a lot of people that are listening to this and think, oh, what's going to happen? It's like, it might not be great tomorrow or next month or next quarter. But as time has proven, it will get better and so or whatever better is, whatever the next iteration is we will end up there and so I think it's just a, a really solid lesson for people tuning in and we kind of went down the you know asking you about you know, why you got into you know doing your own thing, and it makes a ton of sense to me and you know at what point did you realize like this is going to be my thing right because a lot of times it's like you know, the first thing that you, like you said, you didn't have like a perfect idea of what, you know, RegPack was going to be, but you're like, okay, I'm going down the process. Like, was there a time where you remember, and you know, this is it. Like, this is, this is, this is going to be my thing to where I'm going to be able to get 10,000 users logged in at once, et cetera. Like, what, what was like kind of like the first sign for you of like, okay, this is, this is going to be a thing.
1: First of all, I think the initial success of the interest that it spurred the way it started, it, like RegPack has a lot of educational um, institutions that work with us, and the reason is because the way it started is like I, I looked for a field that would need a software that is hyper flexible, right? And I talked to my friends at the administration at Berkeley, and they showed me what they were doing, and I was like, oh, this is dumb. Like, there's a better way to do this, and that's basically what RegPack became. So so the initial interest from the people that it was presented to I think that's what told me okay I think this is this is it I think this is this is going to be interesting
0: Did you already know I mean was the pay- the payments piece in particular cuz you I mean you were kind of ahead of a lot of you know obviously now there's you know a lot of different players and different elements of the payments you know world and and you you know you all do more than just that but was that part of that learning too just from talking like this payments thing is really messed up. Like what was it like about payments in particular that was like interesting for you?
1: I think there were two main things that were interesting to me uh, in payments and and, and again it's a, a lot of times it's connected to personal experience, right? So um, when we moved to the US, I had two small kids and I wanted to send them to camp or to send them to all kinds of like, you know, after school programs and so forth and what the first thing that I noticed is that we were asked for like you know three thousand, five thousand dollars right up like pay up front. And the first thing we asked because we were coming from from a European country is like, okay, can we pay an installments? And they and they and they actually looked at us in amazement, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. What do you mean? What I'm talking about? That's basic. Like, who has, especially a PhD student, who has five thousand dollars just like here? Take it, right? And that's when when uh, I understood that there's an opportunity. Um, and this is one of the main things that RegPack does, and we've seen that businesses that use this in this piece in RegPack, grow by 30% per year. What they do is they offer people uh, to pay in installments, and the, and the software automatically takes the installments on a weekly, on a monthly, whatever they decide. Right? Normally, it's on a monthly basis, and and this is different than using your credit card in the sense that. When you use your credit card, you pay the full $5,000, but then you don't pay the full amount when you submit payment. What you do, but you and now you're paying interest, right? So people don't want to do that. They don't want to pay the interest, but they don't have a choice. Now, the business is actually getting all the money when they don't actually need all the money right away, right? So it's a win-win situation. The business can offer installments, and the parents, or never mind who's registering, like right? the students, are paying in installments up to the point where the, the business actually needs the money. So you're creating a situation where both sides are getting the money at the exact time that they need it. Nobody's paying interest. The business can sell more because more people can now register and pay people that beforehand wouldn't be able to do that. And that was the point. And it's really funny how always it's personal experience. That creates that that understanding of hey, this can be done differently, and that was the point that I understood that payments is really important in this specific space. We've actually grown to like much bigger spaces now, client billing and SaaS software and all that, but that's still the part of RegPack that people love the most.
0: No, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, and I think it's just in today's world we just expect. To do things the way that we want to do them, right? Versus, I think for a long time companies could kind of tell us how to buy, they could tell us, and and now it's the companies that are winning, even sometimes you know, we see from a convenience, like the products that are the most convenient and easiest, they might even win over a superior product. You know, how I, I always tell this story. It's like, how many of you have been on Amazon? And something was gonna get there in four days. And then a similar thing is gonna get there tomorrow. And you're like, ah, forget it. I'll just do the one tomorrow. And when people out there, if you're running a business, you're listening to this, our ability to have options to meet buyers where they are, and and not just in B2C, but in B2B, it's the same thing. You know, B2B is just very linear and you have to go through a process, but we're seeing big changes where you know people are just realizing, wow, we've got to have different paths for people. Like the software rep hit me up. We've got a bunch of free users apparently, or some people are paying. And he's like, let's hop on a call, let's hop on a call. And it's like, No, dude, I don't want to have a call. Just tell me what the cost is. Tell me why, I, why is this is going to help my team. And I think you know, what you're doing is, is giving people that flexibility to buy how they want meeting that customer where they are. And I just feel like as we go forward, that is going to be the name of the game. Like, do you have a, a customized enough offering for customers to where they can do it the way that they want to do it versus how we want to do it, which would be a lot easier if we could just you know have one size fits all. So so I want to ask you a couple of questions like as you're founding the company right? So you start this in school, you see this clear pain and obviously now the company's doing really well. What were some big moments you know for you? One of the things you and I were talking a little bit about is you know you're running hard at this. You went from running hard at school to running hard doing your own company, you've got two kids. What was the point you know I know that you talk a lot about self-care and and meditation and and how important these things are for you. Like when did that really resonate what what was the timing for you like okay i've got to start to realize that running hard is great but i got to take care of the the engine as well too
1: so i think that you you described it very well like I, i was i was running for many many years from i would say age of 25 okay just running running really really fast and at some point you start to feel sort of disconnected from yourself and questions come up of like what is this all for right? Um, like, why am I doing this? Um, but you you push them down. You don't want to ask the question because you're like, okay, I'm not going to deal with this question because it's too big and, and I'm going to get depressed, and I don't want to do that. But then for me, it, uh, I had a wake-up call. We had a problem in the company where we lost some information. It was leaking out. And as I realized that that was happening, I found myself on the floor in a fetal position in a super panic attack for 30 minutes and... I was sure like I was going to die because I felt like everything that I built is going to be destroyed. Obviously, you know, the reality is very different than what you feel at that moment, but that's how I felt. And I threw up the whole like, the whole like super panic attack thing. And then I went to to the doctor, to the normal doctor, right? To ask her like, you know, hey, like this is happening because it continued. It didn't like happen once and that's it. Every single day, it would happen twice or three times. Later, I found out, sadly, that once you start having panic attacks, that's going to happen to you for life, most likely. Yeah, it sucks. Anyway, went to the doctor and she was like, oh yeah, let's put you on Pro- Prozac or something. I was like, no, I, didn't, like, I don't think that's a good solution. Because basically, if I pushed it down my whole life, like, the, like what is this all for? So now you're going to give me chemicals to push it down, which is not exactly what I want to do. And I went to a therapist that I was once I I once went to her for a very specific problem. She helped me and and I called her and her name was, is Ricky. She's still my therapist to this day. And, And I told her like, look, this is happening. And the doctor wants to put me on Prozac. And she was like, you know what? Let's wait. Let's wait for one week, two weeks. Let's talk a bit and see how, if this could be solved. And she introduced me to the whole idea of the leaking bucket and that it's your job to make sure that the bucket is half full. The idea of the leaking bucket is that when we when we run so fast and when we don't stop and we push down the questions all the time, what's happening is that our bucket starts filling up and it fills more and it fills more. At some point it's leaking. And once it's leaking, we suffer really really bad because these things that we're trying to push down, they come out because there's so many of them. And if we don't stop and learn to basically stop thinking and to just feel our body and to understand that the most important person in all of this is me, then, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna end well. And I, I try to do what she, she told me. It didn't work so well in the beginning, in the first three months to the point that I was overworking myself to the point that I burned out. I burned out. I was in bed for a week. I couldn't raise my head. It was really bad. And, and I remember like my little kid coming to me and telling me, dad, is this it? Like you're never going to get up. And that's when I understood that, okay, this has to stop. This has to stop. I need to start taking care of myself. And then like I really got into this. Like me- I meditate every day. I swim every day. I work out. I have at least one or two hours that I play an instrument I make sure that on the weekends I'm only with my kids. And oddly enough, I am more productive today and I get more done than when I was like super busy running after my own tail, you know, taking care of a million things at the same time. Because what happens is that when I work, when I'm sitting down to work and I work a lot of hours, I work like eight, 10, 12 hours sometimes a day, right? But I'm just working. I'm super focused. I'm in the zone. And because I'm so connected to myself now, when I feel that I'm outside of the zone or I can't continue to do really good work, I get up and I go do something else. I go to a restaurant with a friend. I go swim. Like there's no need to try to fight it because that's it. You're done. And if I'll sit three more hours, I'm going to do what tomorrow I'll do in 10 minutes.
0: Right. That's such a good lesson. Where where do you, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening now are, you know, wow, this is like, that makes a ton of sense. How did you, like? I guess, like, what was the conversation like with yourself to get you there? Was it again, like your child come up and saying to you can be kind of a bit of a wake up call? Because I have to imagine at least for a little bit, there's that discomfort around like, am I doing the right thing? Like if I take my foot off the gas, like is this going to, and I'm sure a lot of people go through this, like, how did you start to build that habit? I think I'm really curious about that for myself, you know, myself as well, of like, how did you really start to build that habit and that belief in, you know, again, like working the way that's smart for you. And that doesn't mean having to work 15 hours a day. It could be eight hours this day, 10 hours that day, whatever is required. Like, what were some of like the early trial and errors that you had to like get to this like very, like you said, grounded place that you're in right now?
1: I think the first thing is to understand that everything is your life. People tend to disconnect their work from their life, right? They think like, okay, this is my work and now I finished working, now I'm gonna have fun. I'm gonna live my life. But no, this is, everything is your life. The time that you swim, the time that you play, the time that you work, the time that you think, the time that you plan, that's all your life every single part of it. There's no disconnect. There's no areas. It's all blended, right? So once you start thinking like that, then you understand, okay, if everything is my life, then it's fine for me to swim two hours a day. It's fine for me to play the violin. It's fine for me that today, because I'm in the zone, I'm not going to do those things. It's fine for it not to be like very rigid because everything is your life. That's that's the first thing that really helps me because you, you, and then you never have the um, I know that a lot of people have this sort of like guilt feeling.
0: That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say.
1: I have a guilt feeling because I I was at the pool for two hours today. No, it doesn't matter because everything is your life. Okay. It's not like, and then if you, you were two hours at the pool and now in four hours, you did what what normally you would do in eight hours. That's perfect. That's perfect. Right. And then after those four hours, Once you're done doing what you planned for the day, get up and go play soccer. You're done. That's it. So I think that was the first really like realization. And the second one was that it's never going to be enough. Right. Right. And the fact that it's never going to be enough means that you can only do your best. Okay. So if tomorrow morning I go and and I buy a Porsche, I'll be like, okay, why didn't I buy a Ferrari? So it doesn't matter. So it really does not matter. And once you realize that...
0: Yeah, there's, the work never stops. Yeah, it never ends.
1: It never stops. It never stops. No, it doesn't. Like, I sit down with my team and we go over the numbers and this is just the person I am, right? We had an amazing month, okay? We grew by 100% and I'm like, okay, how do we replicate this and do 150% next month? And they're like, how... Like, what's wrong with you? Like, no, we're not celebrating now. We need to learn how to make this happen next month twice as good. And then you understand, like, you can live, you can, you can do that, but you need to disconnect that from who you are. It's hard to explain. It's like, let's say this month we grew 100%. It doesn't mean I'm a better person. And let's say we, next month, we actually declined by 10%. It doesn't mean that I'm not a good person. My self-worth and who I am is connected to me. And the business or what I'm doing is connected to that.
0: I love that, man. I love it. I'm take, I'm just jotting down some of these, these little nuggets here. So when I go back and listen, there's just so, so much good here. And, and this actually leads really well to the next topic I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is... You know, we were talking early about before the show started on working hard, working hard versus working smart and, you know, getting more accomplished. And you're starting, you know, you're talking about that a little bit, but I want to, I wonder if we can go a little deeper there for people. I see this in, even in my own company that, you know, one of our four core values is actually work smart and it's on purpose. It's not work hard because I feel like sometimes we just get so, Working hard is gritting it out, right? I'm just, you know, and and a lot of people can work hard, right? I can check a lot of boxes in a day. I can answer, you know, all my emails. I can do X, I can do Y, but are we actually doing the work? Are we actually like moving the needle versus, you know, all these little things that might feel like they're like micro moving the needle, but may or may not be actually like, what's the most important thing that I should be doing? And so for you, like talk a little bit about that philosophy for you. You know, we were talking before, and I know that that's something, this idea of like being smart with how you work and your time versus just checking a lot of boxes is something that you've you know, really spent a lot of time on. So
1: I think the best way of thinking of it instead of working hard is like the difference between being busy and actually working. Okay. So when you're busy, a lot of times you're just like doing, you're in a, you're in doing mode right? But you're not necessarily stopping and thinking, are these the things that I should be doing? Are these the things that are, like you said, like I'm going to move the needle? And first of all, it's like, it's connected to what I talked about before, right? Being busy doesn't help. Okay. So like, I'm sure everybody's going to relate to this. You know, the point where you're in your emails and you're just scrolling up and down and you're not doing anything. You're just looking at which email you want to answer because you're totally burned out, your brain is not functioning anymore, and you're just scrolling up and down and you're just going into emails and you're not really answering them, don't. Get up. You're done. You're done. Okay? You're you're just being busy now, right? You're done for that day. You can't do any more that day. That's fine. Okay? So then when you actually are sitting down and, and doing the work, and this is something that I work with my team all the time, Okay? we set criterias of what are things that are important to us. Because in a software company, you have a million requests. People are coming in with feature ideas all the time and, and saying, okay, we want you to do this and we want you to build that. And of course you have the, the, the clients who are, there are like, you know, if this doesn't exist, then we're leaving or, or whatever, right? And then what really helped my company understand how to function are two technologies that I introduced into the company. One is the tier-based structure of clients, okay? So clients are put automatically into tier levels on how, of basically how much they earn for the company, right? And based on their tier level, we determine how important they are for us as a company. Now, this really helped quieten the noise, Because suddenly you saw a lot of noise are coming, we have like from tier one to tier six. A lot of noise are coming from the tier six clients, right? They're making so much noise, but when you look at them, they're basically generating something like 5% of the revenue of the company. So it really helps you understand, okay, what should I be listening to? That's one. The second thing is, okay, once you've understood what you should be listening to, you still have too much to do. At this point, what we do is we put in a criteria. We say, what's going to make the most impact? How many clients are going to be impacted by this change or by this new feature? Are we going to work less once this feature happens? Or will it bring us more clients? So those are the four criteria. And if something hits four criteria, we run on it like crazy. If it hits three, less. If it hits only one, it's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Now, what this, this really puts you in focus on how do I make my company grow? Because at the end, moving the needle is making your company grow, right? So it really focuses you on how you're gonna grow your company. Now, it took me about, I think, between six to eight months to get all the company to talk in these terms because I was like constantly talking about it. What are the criteria what tier is the client? Every single situation, that people would bring to me, I'd be, what tier is the client? What tier is the client? Tier six, I don't care. Don't talk to me about them. Just don't. No, but I don't want to listen. I don't care. What tier is it? Tier one, yes, please. Explain to me what is the problem, okay? And then the third thing that we do is we do not come to people with solutions. We only come to people with problems. A lot of times someone has a problem and they figure out the solution in their mind, okay? And they come in and, you know, guns blazing. I need this and this and this and this and this. And you're like, okay, fine. Now, in a company that doesn't ask questions, everybody goes running around trying to get whatever this person asked for, right? They get what what the person asked for. They give it to them and it doesn't solve the problem. Obviously, because they didn't think about it on how to solve the problem. They just wanted the solution that they came up with. So what we always do in RegPack is that, when someone comes up with a solution or a feature request, we're like, stop. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Because we found that 90% of the time, the solution that they come up with is the wrong solution.
0: That's right. It's like in the ballpark, right? It's, yeah, it's like in the area. That's right. That's what I've found in my life. That's what great product people, you know. I've very been very blessed, you know, for my my career as a, as a sales leader to work with great product people. And that's exactly the mindset. It's like, don't tell me. You know, and like whenever we, you know, we do operations consulting for organizations, revenue operations consulting, and it's so crazy how many organizations run with a bunch of solutions. It's like, no, 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 don't tell me. I need a dashboard with, bup. nope, nope. What are you trying to accomplish? What's the problem? Okay, great. Now you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go solve it this way. And it's actually going to solve like 18 things. It's like, oh, wow, like, I never thought of that. I I love that idea. How do you balance that with, you know, there's kind of the other mindset too, which is like, you know, don't bring someone a problem without a solution to it. You know, that's definitely like a saying I've heard before. How do you balance those two things where you also want someone to, you know, think through the problem more, I guess? I don't know. I, I guess, yeah. Like, how do you think about those two things together? About, you know, you do want people thinking a little bit about potential solutions, but I guess, you know, in your mindset, it's like, no, don't let other people help you figure out what the solution is, period.
1: I I think, first of all, RegPack is a company that really empowers all our employees to come up with solutions and solve problems. It's like, it's, it's a known thing. Like, you come with a problem to one of your managers and most of the times, the answer will be figure it out. Like, find a solution. But the thing is that once you come up with a solution that demands a lot of resources in order to implement it, then at that point, stop. Stop, let's brainstorm about this. Maybe your solution is perfect, okay? Maybe your solution is perfect, but let's stop, let's think about it and let's think what works best. Also remember that this specific mindset that I talked about is really good when the amount of the pressure to create and to do specific things is really hard. Like a lot of ideas are coming in, a lot of demands, a lot of requests. And then it's very easy to look and understand how to solve the problem. Once you understand the problem and, and you, and out of like 10 solutions that come up, suddenly it becomes two, you understand? So it really depends. You need to use the right tool for the right situation. Also, one of the things that we do at RegPack is that when someone comes up with a solution, which is fine, okay? Let's explain to me the problem, okay? Now explain to me, how did you reach the conclusion that this is the solution? What's the data that you used And how did you gather the data? Like, remember, I'm a PhD, right? This is what I do. I do research, right? So I'm like, okay, what's the data? How did you gather the data? How did you manipulate it? And now explain to me why this is the solution. So it needs to be very, very grounded in logic and in, in science.
0: I love that. Yeah, and I call it like, layer two, if I can't ask two layers of questions, okay, great. Tell me how you came up. Well, this, okay. And then what, you know, again, what evidence or like what research, if an idea can't pass the level two, like I call it like, it's like a, I think of it like a wet paper bag. It's like, if I can go like this and it punches straight through the, the you know, the concept, it's like, you probably just need to go back and again, rethink what the problem is. Is that, or, or to your point, is that the problem that we should be solving with based on like these criteria? And I love this idea of having a really simple four things that, you know, you, you that everyone can run any of their idea filters by to say, is this something we should pursue? You know, again, less work, bring new clients, you know, impact on customer, like, I just think that that we try to make business so complicated at times. But if you as an organization or you're working, even if you're working in a department, you could come up with that. I could just see a lot of power there, you know, and the ability to really like simplify the the way that you think about taking on projects. So this is great, man. So we're almost at our time here. And so I'm gonna ask you kind of a question that I ask everyone. There's been a ton here. I've got like a page and a half of notes, by the way. What's next? Like when you think about like what's like what gets you excited for like the next big leap. You know, what are the things that as you're looking at your business and what you're doing, or, or it could be personal, what has you excited, you know, for the next, like, year or two?
1: RegPack is at the point where it can become what I envisioned it to become. I always say this to people that want to really understand what RegPack is easily. It's Shopify for services, okay? It's like services work in a very different way than, you know, just, like, products. They have onboarding processes. That it's, it's very different. So RegPack is, is Shopify for services. And from what I hope to see in the next two years is that RegPack will become the onboarding platform that services use when they're onboarding their clients and charging them and billing them and so forth. And sometimes it's a little bit amazing to me that in basically 2023, still you can see that it's so disjointed the way that services work and which softwares they use. And and there is a reason, right? It's a very complicated problem because every service and every business onboards their clients very differently, okay? Because the, that's the base of the business, the onboarding process. That's how they become a client. And there was never a software that was able to do exactly that for all types of businesses. And RegPack can do that because the extreme technology that stands behind it where it allows everything to be available. So... So we're seeing that more and more businesses that are service-based understand that they need to up their game. And maybe this downturn actually is a blessing in disguise and will cause a lot of these businesses to do that. And that's where I see RegPack in the next two years, to become the Shopify of services.
0: I love it. Well, look, there's a lot. I mean, getting into this, you know, I knew we were going to talk a lot about some of these topics, but man everything is your life. I have this written down. I have got. I even have like a little star by it. I just feel like there's so much very practical, because that's what I love. You know, it, philosophy is one thing, but I think a lot of the examples you gave, hopefully for everyone listening, you know, are also very tactical, meaning things that you could take one step forward, really think about, you know, to yourself of like that leaking bucket, just, you know, sitting with yourself, thinking through what's causing that. And, you know, understanding this idea of like, truly, like, you know, you're living in what, what people would call an, you know, an integrated life, right, which is there is only one life, you know, they, these things are already integrated, whether you want to compartmentalize them as much as you want, like it is one life. And I just have to say, I really enjoyed the conversation, man. I think the listeners are gonna have a ton of takeaways. So thank you for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. And everyone... We will see you next week on The Jake Dunlap Show. Thank you, everyone, again, for listening to another episode. If you are listening all the way to the end, I hope you have left a review. I hope that you make sure that you're following or subscribing on your favorite podcast, Listening Apparatus. We'll be back next Thursday. And again, make sure to check out the Monday episodes as well, too. A lot of people are really enjoying these kind of mini-episode Mondays. So make sure to tune in, subscribe, and leave a review.